0: This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. I'm Claire, one of the co leaders here. Today, I want to continue a series that I've been doing on what is God like. What we think about God, his character, and his nature changes everything about how we see ourselves, how we relate to God, and how we relate to each other. If we believe that God's character and nature is to love unconditionally, then we are gonna feel loved and we're likely to extend that love to other people around us. If we believe God is in his essence good, then we will live assured that even when things are not going well, it's gonna be okay. If we believe God judges harshly, then we are likely to live with the need to perform. And if we believe God treats us like that, then we're likely to judge others harshly too. If we believe God is vengeful, needing to settle scores, then we are likely to be people that hold grudges, and so on. So what we believe about God is really important to who we are. And uh, one aspect of God, which can be a challenge for us to get our head around and to understand, is to do with wrath. It's really tricky to reconcile the image of an angry, violent God that we read about in the Old Testament with the kind and loving Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. You know, can they really be the same? And for many of us, that remains the question that we simply just put on the shelf for another day. Richard Dawkins, in his popular book, The God Delusion, says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, I had to read up some of the definitions of these, pestilential, megalomaniacal. Sadio masochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> now, that might sound a bit extreme, um, but for many people, because of what we've been taught, or maybe what we've experienced from authority figures in our lives, there may be part of us that fears there may, might be a tiny little bit of truth in some of that. A good friend of many of ours, Liz Nixon, who used to be part of Seven and who spoke here recently, gave me permission to share part of her story. When she was about 15, her and her friend were assaulted by a a boy demanding money, and so they had to appear in court to give witness statements. Now, when Liz had given a statement to the police, she hadn't told the whole truth. She hadn't mentioned that when the boy demanded money, she had sworn at him because she was scared that her parents would find out. Now, for Liz, as the court date approached, she became increasingly worried and anxious about testifying, because she believed that if she swore on the Bible and didn't tell the whole truth, that God was going to strike her down. She really believed that. So you'll be glad to know that she did actually go back to the police in advance and change her statement, and so she narrowly escaped being annihilated by God. Um, But you know, although Liz was only 15 when this occurred, her belief that God might strike her down was something she carried well into her adult years. Christian thinking in the Western world over the last few centuries has been heavily influenced by a 16th century French theologian called John Calvin. He was a principal figure in the development of a system of theology we now have today called Calvinism. Now Calvin wrote a series of sermons on Ephesians which included sentences like this, we are naturally children of wrath. By nature, we can do nothing else but provoke God's wrath. And also, who are you, O wretched creature? For you see you are separated from your God, even from birth. Look, you are his enemy and inheritor of his wrath. Taking his lead from Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, you will have probably heard of him too, a theologian and philosopher, during the, during the evangelical revival of the 1730s and 1740s, preached what became a famous and influential sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You might have heard of this. And here's a quote from him. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some lonesome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire." I I kind of find it hard to find that that kind of was coupled with revival. Um, Now, clearly this is extreme and not something that most of us will hold to today. However, I think it's possible that there are remnants of this thinking for some of us And if it's not for um, relevance of this in our thinking for some of us, and if not for ourselves, maybe it's the caricature our friends or family might hold of God. So today, we're going to take a few moments to explore wrath and God. Not the most popular sermon subject I know, um, but one that I am actually passionate about, because I believe that when we have a greater understanding of wrath, God becomes bigger, better, and more beautiful than we've ever thought of before. I've mainly used two books as my source material for this talk. It's the, most, the more Christ-like Gospel by uh, Brad Jerzak, and How to Read the Bible Well by Steve Bernhope, and we recently ran a six-week course on that. But I highly recommend these books to you if you want to dig a little bit deeper, because I'm only going to skim the surface today. Okay, so Wrath and God, let's begin. To begin, I want to turn first to the subject of pets. How many of you here have a pet? Yeah. Who has a dog? Good. Who has a cat? Oh. Any you other know, furry little animal? Like just a small little fairy? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Any exotic animals around here? No, that's, that's disappointing. But anyway, um, I assume because your pet is your wholeheartedly loved fairy friend that you are fully in tune with how your pet feels. You know when it's happy, when it's sad, when it's angry. You talk to it and fully expect it to understand every word that you say. For those of you who own a cat, how would you feel if I said to you that I heard on the radio Just recently, there'd been a a study um, done on dead cats, I'm afraid, I'm sorry. And they discovered that quite possibly, the purr of a cat had absolutely nothing to do with it being happy. But was simply a physiological response to being stroked. So, no emotion, no happy little cat, just a benign... physiological response to being touched. It's scandalous. I know, how could that possibly be true? Excuse me, I've got a hair in my mouth. Excuse me. Sorry. Right. (laughs) Anyway, we love to give our pets human characteristics, don't we? We place our emotions onto our animals, how we would feel and assume that they feel the same way. And there's a special term for this, you may know it, it's anthropomorphism, when we use human characteristics to help describe and explain something else. But it's not only animals or objects that we do this with, we do this with God too. A very astute philosopher from the 17th century, Voltaire, once said, In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favour ever since. We do that, don't we? When we are trying to understand what God is like, it's easier to imagine that it's probably something a bit like us, only bigger and better. Of course, referencing human characteristics to explain what God is like is generally very helpful. God himself chose to reveal himself in the human person of Jesus. However, sometimes when we do this, we can run into trouble. The Oxford Dictionary definition of the word wrath is extreme anger. Other associated words are fury, annoyance, outrage, indignation. We use phrases like they've reached their boiling point or has a face like thunder. It gives the impression of unpredictability, like someone flipping their lid. The problem comes when we apply these distinctly human terms of wrath to the word wrath in relation to God that we read about in the Bible. Not least because the Bible almost universally says that we are to reject wrath and anger and have nothing to do with them. Colossians 3, 8 says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice. And in James chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We need to be clear that the wrath of God is very different from human wrath and anger. God doesn't have a temper. He's not volatile or edgy. He doesn't fly off the handle or slam the door in a tantrum. Wrath in the Bible is never spoken of as a characteristic or attribute of God in the same way that love is. We never hear God is wrath, but we do hear that God is love. Amongst the most frequently repeated affirmations in the Old Testament relating to God's nature and character is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Psalm 145. So I'm not saying that God doesn't get angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus expressed righteous anger against the injustice that was happening in the temple. But when we look at Jesus, who according to the disciple John is the exact representation of God, Jesus is God. When we look to Jesus, there is no record of Jesus using violence against people when he was angry. Even when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and Peter cut off the soldier's ear with a sword, Jesus healed him. You know, Jesus could have turned a blind eye. He could have let that one go. He didn't actually do it. When Jesus was tortured and beaten and forced to carry his cross, he never used force to fight back. Even when the soldiers nailed him to the cross and left him to die, he asked his heavenly father to forgive them. Remember the words of Isaiah in chapter 55. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay second thing that i want us to consider is how we view the stories that we read about in the old testament if in case you're not familiar with the old testament there are certain passages that appear to command or at least condone genocide if it wasn't in the bible we would probably call it ethnic cleansing and god having told them to do it is often given as the reason Now, it's important to remember that the Bible is more than a collection of books about God. It's a collection of books about a people group, the Israelites, and their journey of encounter and relationship with God. We see God revealed to us in the Bible through the eyes and ears and experiences of this people group. This um, beautiful dawn picture was taken early one morning last week in Norfolk. Not me, I'm afraid, someone else took it. But I don't know if you've ever been up early enough to see the dawn. Normally for me, it's when I'm camping, six o'clock is the time that I'm desperate for the loo, isn't it, Erin? But you know, what a difference it makes from the darkness of the night when the sun begins to rise and illuminate everything around. In probably the space of about half an hour, Everything you could only see dimly, vaguely make out the shape of or possibly not see at all, now becomes clear and visible and plain for the eye to see. And we use this image as a metaphor when we begin to understand something more fully. We say that something has just dawned on us. The image of dawn breaking can be helpful in illustrating the Israelites' journey of their understanding of who God is and what he's like that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. Think right back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 3, with Adam saying, I heard you walking in the garden, God, and I was afraid of you, so I hid. Compare that to the 365 times later in the Bible that God says, do not fear. Remember how when Moses and Joshua were first learning about who God is, around the same time as these genocidal texts, And God speaks to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus 3. And during the conversation, Moses has to say to him, "Uh, Excuse me, but which God are you? What's your name? Which God do I say that's sending me? Compare that to the innumerable names of God, illustrating God's attributes that we encounter later on in Scripture. When we read these stories, we shouldn't assume that the characters at the time had the same understanding of who God is and what he's like that is available to us now, 2,000 years later. They didn't have a nice little Gideon Bible left in their bedside table when they visited the village inn. They are on a journey of discovery here. There is development going on, and we get to look in from afar. The book of Hebrews explains the early understanding of God and the later understanding in these terms. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the revelation of who God is and what he's like from the past has suddenly been taken to a whole new level of visibility and clarity by the revelation of who God is and what he's like in Jesus. And it's also good to remember that the Bible is not meant to be read like a textbook, as if it was written directly for us here in the 21st century. The Bible is a collection of ancient literature that invites us to ask questions to grapple with it and work out how it applies to our context today. That's certainly what the Jewish rabbis would have done. And it was a process called midrash. So when we look at these difficult passages, we might ask a few questions like, to what extent, extent might these stories reflect that there was development going on here? Are we seeing an example of how, God, how people at that time thought about their gods? In the ancient world, the place of God or a particular society's God was central in everything that happened. They sought counsel from the gods on everything. So they would naturally make the conclusion that it was, or give God, make God the reason for them doing something. Was it the belief system of their day that God would obviously want them to eliminate their enemies who were following the wrong gods? Are these stories an example of religious zeal going badly wrong? A warning against being so passionate for God that we want to eliminate people that we see as God's enemies. And what is sometimes overlooked when we're looking at these passages is that there are other Old Testament texts from the exact same period that offer a very different perspective on the nature and character of God. In Leviticus 19, it says, The foreigner residing amongst you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, as you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Are we seeing inconsistency in the Bible? Or again, is it illustrating that Israel's understanding of God was indeed in a process of development? The last thing that I want to explore today with regards to wrath is to consider wrath as a hammer-throwing contest. So bear with me for a moment. I'm going to steal a story from Brad Jerzak's book, A More Christ-Like God, that I mentioned. And here here, Brad recounts a story from his early childhood when, despite being warned by his father to not throw hammers in the air... He and his friend Dougie, they were about seven at the time, saw this more as an enticing challenge and a rule to be broken and decided to have a contest to see who could throw their hammer the highest, straight up in the air. Now Brad can't remember who won but he certainly recalls that Poor Dougie lost as Brad's hammer descended directly into poor Dougie's skull. Blood everywhere, screaming the lot. Brad hoped that running home, locking the doors, and hiding in his bedroom would save him from what might happen next. But no. The phone rang, Dougie's mum. And Brad was whisked away to the hospital. And on arrival, there was Dougie already having his head sewn up. No anaesthetic, more screaming, horrendous. Now, even though Brad was only seven, he was not unaware of the fact that it was his and Dougie's own actions that had led to the suffering. Brad's father's response to him had only been love and comfort. For Brad, going to the hospital and hearing Dougie's screams, he reports, enabled him to face up to the pain he had caused, to own his actions and to be reconciled to his victim, Dougie. The natural, self-inflicted consequences of that event did more than any punishment could ever do. The Apostle Paul defines wrath three times in the book of Romans as God giving people up or giving them over, in a sense of standing aside to allow the natural negative consequences of people's bad choices to come to pass. C.H. Dodd, a Welsh and New Testament scholar and theologian, from the 20th century says this, the wrath of God is not describing an attitude of God towards humanity, but is an inevitable inevitable process of cause and effect in a moral universe. God's giving up or standing aside honors human's free will to choose. But knowing that sin carries its own penalty God doesn't leave us hanging but reaches out and offers us enduring mercy. We need a saviour who rescues us from ourselves, our sin and its consequences. The Bible defines mercy as an everlasting, unfailing attribute of God. 26 times in Psalm 136, it says that his mercy endures forever. And in his mercy, God does indeed come to our rescue, not to rescue us from God's punishment, but from the natural consequences of our own choices. Romans 6 Verse 23 says, For the wages, the consequences of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see this beautifully illustrated in probably the most famous of Jesus' parables, the prodigal son who is intent on doing his own thing, taking his inheritance, leaving his father's house. He ended up with the humiliation of no money, no home eating the food of the pigs the pig pen was the consequence of the prodigal son's own selfish choices and in love the father consents and gives him over and when the son's done and comes back what does he get punishment no anger no having to recompense what he's done? No, none of that. His father welcomes him with open arms, throws him a party and freely gives him back the life he had. So remembering again that the Bible reveals to us the journey that the nation of Israel went on. In summary, Brad Jerzak says this in relation to Roth. The Bible itself takes us on a progressive pilgrimage from primitive literal uh, understandings of wrath where God appears to burn with anger and react violently to a metaphorical reading of wrath in which, sorry, react violently to a metaphorical reading of wrath in which God consents, gives us over to the self-destructive consequences of our own willful defiance. God will not and cannot by love's nature coerce us to obey. God grants us the dignity and discomfort of finding our own bottom, the end of which is willing surrender to the arms of grace. In the Bible, the shorthand for this process is wrath. So to finish with, to help us see the difference that this perspective on Roth might make to us, I'd like to finish with a little illustration called the Gospel in Chairs. And it was first composed by an Orthodox priest from Colorado Springs and has since been taken and adapted and retold in the US and UK and around various countries around the world. But basically, I'm going to present the Gospel to you in two different ways. The first time is a a way that you will have likely heard repeated throughout your life. And there is much beauty and truth in this. And in fact, I came to faith through hearing it this way. But I think in light of what I've talked about today, I'd like to suggest that there might be a more biblical way to look at it. So then I'm going to run through it a second time with a few adjustments. Okay. I'm also going to try and do it off by heart, so bear with me. Let me just take a bit of water. If I make a mess of it, then you can just watch it online in a much better way. (laughs) Okay. So, in the beginning, God created humankind, male and female. And the God of love created us in him, his image, and desired nothing more than to have an intimate face-to-face relationship with us, his people. It's God, people. But love necessitates choice. So God gave humanity the actual freedom to choose whether to remain in this love relationship with him or to go their own way. Now we read in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to go their own way. And we call that sin. And generation after generation since, humanity has chosen to go its own way. Now, God is pure and holy and cannot look on sin. And also, he's a righteous and just judge. And so we are under his condemnation and judgment. And so God turns his back on us. But God is not just a just just and righteous judge. He's also a loving father. So God sent Jesus to be one of us. And Jesus not only took on our sin, but he also took on our flesh. And because God is pure and holy, he turns his back on Jesus too. And God sacrifices his son to appease his wrath. To satisfy his anger, he perfectly punishes sin in Jesus. But because Jesus faithfully takes the punishment that should be ours, God raises him back to life again and seats him at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus changes our heart towards the Father. And he also changes the Father's heart towards us who has vented his wrath on his his son and can now relate to us in mercy. So that's the gospel round one. Does that sound familiar? Okay, let's go again with a few little adjustments. In the beginning, God created humankind male and female and God who is love made us in his image and desired nothing more than to be in a love face-to-face relationship with us but love necessitates choice. And so God gave humanity the actual freedom to choose whether to remain in relationship with him or whether to go their own way. And we read in Genesis that Adam and Eve chose to go their own way. And since then, generation after generation, humanity has chosen to go its own way. Now God, who is pure and holy and righteous, pursues us. He came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. Even when they were sent out of paradise, he went with them. He clothed them and he covered their shame. He went looking for Cain after he killed his brother Abel and, and said that he would protect him. God came looking for his people every time they turned away. And God said, I'll send, I'll give you laws to guide you. He turns to face them. He says, I'll direct you to your wholeness. But the Israelites said, No. We prefer the golden calf. And God said, I'll send you prophets to call you, to teach you, to bring you to myself. And the Israelites said, no. God kept coming. And the Israelites and we keep turning away. Until finally, because God loves us, He sent Jesus to be one of us and to show us what the fullest human life could look like. Never had the world seen such an amazing person as when they saw Jesus. He taught us how to love, not to only love God, but to love each other as ourselves, to even love our enemy to see the worth and value in every human being. Jesus lived a life that rebuked religion and welcomed every sinner close who felt they were far away from God. He never pushed them away in judgment. He always brought them close. After Jesus had reached out to the woman at the well, Samaritan, who said to him, why are you speaking to me? He said, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to reveal myself to you. When he spoke to tax collector Zacchaeus, who the whole town despised, Jesus said, I'm coming to your house for tea. We're going to hang out together. Jesus front load and <laughs> he started with compassion. He started with acceptance. He started with forgiveness always. When Jesus met the woman caught in adultery, who was waiting to be stoned, he protected her. And he said to her, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Again, acceptance and forgiveness came first. Jesus challenged the societal norms. He threatened the religious institutions and they didn't know what to do with him. So they crucified him. Humanity poured its wrath out on Jesus and the Father looked on and expresses his love and reconciliation in Jesus. In the book of Corinthians, it said that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And so Jesus died and raised to life again. And he invites us into relationship with the Father. The Father who's always been the prodigal son's father, Waiting to welcome us home. This is God's disposition towards us. And it doesn't end there. God not only promises to walk alongside us, but he wants to live in us and us in him. So he gives us his spirit and we do life together. And that's good news. great so we're just going to pray to finish off with now um you just close your eyes father thank you that you are far bigger brighter more beautiful better than we could ever possibly imagine and i just thank you that you are always pursuing us that you are always standing there with arms open wide. You are the prodigal son's father always and every day. And I can't thank you enough. His words are not enough to thank you for sending Jesus so that we could know you, so that we could see you, so that we could have a real face-to-face, intimate relationship with you. Thank you that you reach out to us every every single day. And I pray, Father, that our hearts will be soft to you. I thank you that as we sincerely seek to know you, to know more about who you are and what you're like, that you reveal your truth to us. That's what you love to do. And so this week, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray today and every single day of this week that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be opened to see you, to hear you, to know you, and to allow you to reveal more of yourself, more of your incredible love, more of your grace and your mercy to us. I pray that you would help us to grasp in a fresh and deeper way who you really are because that's the only God that we want to know is the one that you are. Thank you. Thank you that you are more passionate about this than even we are. Amen. Amen.